Hello and welcome to our AIES podcast, Politics on Point. In this special series of four podcast episodes, we will be covering a broad range of different topics relevant to the European Union as a global actor. My name is Livia Benko. I'm a research fellow at the AIES, and I am the host of today's episode on EU-African Union relations. In this episode, we will be discussing the key areas of cooperation between the African Union and the European Union, and what progress has been made, how do geopolitical shifts, such as China's growing presence in Africa, impact the relationship between the African Union and the European Union. I am delighted to welcome our expert speaker for today's discussion, Mr. Kwame Obino, who is the Chief Executive Officer at the Institute of Economic Affairs, Kenya. Kwame, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I would like to begin with asking you about what are the key areas of cooperation between the African Union and the European Union, and what progress has been made in recent years to strengthen this partnership? All right. I think uh, EU relations with the African Union um, takes two forms. I think one is basically EU support to the AU directly, and the other is EU support to uh, individual countries or regions of the African continent conditioned on the uh, requirements or conditioned on the on the agreements that African countries and the goals that African countries have agreed at AU level, at the African Union level. So you could look at them in two different, in those two different ways. Um, but I think the vast part of it, of course, goes through many things, obviously economic development, certainly security and peace um, as well, which in which the AU um, tries its best, but obviously regional organizations, including on the East African coast, EGAD and a few others, and on the West as well, um, do that. So I think it's all manner of uh, economic development driven into social policy, health, education, and obviously security, on which of course this continent has significant challenges in some pockets of the, of, of the regions, and in which the EU, AU, together with the EU obviously, uh, take lead and the EU provides both uh, material, intellectual, and other forms of support uh, to allow for uh, African countries to drive their development according to the priorities that have agreed individually, but also priorities that have been agreed at the uh, uh, continental level. Okay, thank you for this um, for this answer to this very broad question. Um, secondly, I would like to ask you, what are potential entry points for closer cooperation between the EU and the African Union? Okay, that's a nice question. And, uh, and I think when I, when I thought about this and looked at uh, it, as I said, there's quite a, a variety of ways in which uh, EU cooperation with African countries individually, regionally, and obviously globally, I mean, um, continent-wide uh, uh, are designed, I think uh, strengthening the African Union's institutional character, basically to make the African Union serve its uh, membership in a more, uh, if I may say, competent, but also be able to provide the professional cadre, which it thinks it has, but I think that uh, there are significant challenges for which the, uh, the institutional development and character of the AU could be advanced. So I think that would be one area. The second area would be obviously African countries have, again, based on their commitments at the AU, uh, this big challenge uh, to create an African continental free trade area. 
it's a very complex and complicated uh, goal in which many parts of the world, including the EU itself, is quite supportive of African advances in this way. Uh, I think making uh, a working 54-country um, trade arrangement is not going to be easy. Looking at the, uh, as I say, the institutional, um, 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 the institutional capability or competence of the AU itself, it's going to be stretched quite a bit to be able to get consensus, but also to drive the different strands uh, that are required. So there, uh, the experience of the EU, in my view, um, but also just basically putting together resources available, opportunities for, for learning, and obviously driving the AUs and the regional blocks uh, in the work that is required to create that fusion, I think is significant. Uh, third area, obviously, is peace and security. And I think if you look at it on the African continent, I think um, uh, from the year 2000 right up to about the middle of um, maybe the first 15 years of 2015, there was a significant trend where uh, increasingly democratization and peace and security in the African continent were going in the right direction. Um, I think you can't say now that that's happening. Of course, more and more African people are living under democratic conditions, but the stability that is required, and we could mention many countries starting in the eastern coast of Africa uh, or the eastern side of Africa. I think uh, consolidating peace in Somalia is an imperative. Um, I think the EU support uh, both in terms of humanitarian, but basically just trying to get uh, an even uh, institution that would allow for peace to be created and for some kind of stability to maintain over a long period of time to consolidate that democratic uh, experiment is required. We also know that in the north of Africa, specifically uh, Sudan, obviously it's unraveling again. There's a possibility of civil war. Um, many African countries that have been cited are themselves have interests. So obviously, an external hand helping with UN um, interventions, I think, in terms of peace is required. And if you talk about that throughout Africa, going down to the west, you're talking about Mali, large countries where centralized authority of governments is breaking. Uh, very, very fast, uh, with obviously interventions coming in from other parts of the world, not you. Um, so we all understand the Wagner Group and its effects uh, in Mali, obviously in the Central African Republic and other parts of, of the continent. I think uh, to talk about consolidating peace, uh, democracy, which is an indispensable part for actually creating peace over the longer term, are areas in which obviously EU's uh, uh, support would be required. Uh, that's the globe, I mean, at the African level, but also within individual countries such as Africa itself. Um, I think one of the most contested things on the African continent is going to be elections and for the foreseeable future, in my view, uh, because of the fractious nature of the politics. I think the uh, a civil service or a civil uh, public sector that is not always uh, dispassionate, which takes sides. Um, and so obviously looking at this, helping to ensure those elections uh, while they must be run on the policy of African countries, but oversight, I mean, rather uh, assistance to ensure that fairness and the real results, which we all know is happening right now in, in the Gambia uh, uh, um, and other parts of, of this country. So that kind of contestation, but just bringing in information, bringing in the support that many countries require, even if they don't always admit it, is essential and all that. And then we have the difficult one, um, uh, which is global immigration. I think the EU has a posture uh, based on domestic political considerations, and that's true. Um, I think it's not only African people, but many people actually are crossing the channel, going from northern parts of Africa into Europe. Uh, and it's a concern for 
for Europe. Uh, many people in Europe consider it a security concern. Other people think that it's just a question of people following uh, economic opportunities. Uh, and it's not easy. Uh, so of course, there's legal immigration patterns, but obviously there's the legal ones that's creating a lot of debts on the China. So here too, I think there's not going to be, it's clear that the policies that the European Union have taken, in which many African countries, to a large extent, especially West Africa and other countries are looking the other side, is a suboptimal position. So coming together to actually talk about, even if it's not only between the EU and African countries, um, but this basically a global redefinition of what immigration conditions should be and kind of protections that would be given to immigrants, whether they're moving for political reasons, for economic opportunity reasons and all that. It's very, very clear that a blockage um, and the kind of looking back that has happened is not useful because as we all know, a month ago, close to 500 people lost their lives. Uh, yes, it was illegal immigration, but at the same time, I think these are human lives and there's concern for that. Right? Uh, so in all that area as well about immigration, I think there's opportunity to open up to what new ways could we try to, to manage what is actually a cross-border global problem. But I, in this case, it's not just Africans, but of course, the African continent and especially the northern parts of Africa, some countries that are very, very fragile, talking Libya, uh, Tunisia as well, which, which is a little bit more stable, but more recently has had also political challenges. And those provide pockets for people to actually moving to Europe um, in ways that are uncomfortable for European people. I think um, it's not enough to simply patrol those places because it's clear that what's been happening so far is uh, leading to suboptimal outcomes, loss of lives on one side and obviously insecurity, but also the fear um, of European citizens that uh, too many immigrants are going into their country. So all those among many others, but obviously strengthening democratization. And I think a global compact about reform of the UN and creating new global institutions for global public goods would be useful. And I add a fifth one, which is basically climate change. I think uh, um, it's clear that uh, there's a significant concern again, uh, African countries, if you talk about Africa generally, individual African countries, but obviously I think the, uh, Paris Agreement and obviously all these agreements, the COP um, meetings and all that. I think uh, there is need for movement about how to get uh, uh, global cooperation. So that's not just EU and Africa, but it's possible to start at this small scale and then hope to use uh, whatever agreements are made to influence and to inform other countries because this is one area in which uh, uh, global commons and its management, but also responding to this challenge, which is very, very real is clear and i don't think that it's possible to make uh, progress in any one country outside the others and then of course sixth i think is international trade uh, trade and expansion of trade in the african continent between between eu and africa as well is one uh, possible agenda so sorry i mentioned too many of them but i think all those are, um, are significant things thank you for this extensive analysis you mentioned many interesting points for our listeners um, I would like to follow up with a question. Um, how did the war in Ukraine impact Africa-Europe relations, in your opinion? And what are its implications for pre-existing geopolitical trends? Right. Okay, so let's start with one one thing. I, I think you're aware of it, but perhaps we need to make you, you your listeners. Uh, so yes, I think in, in, in the global literature, when people speak about regional part, parts of the world, they speak about Africa as if it's one country. Obviously it is not, and I know you all know it. It's 54 different uh, political entities. They have a lot in common, but they also have very significant differences. 
So the 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 the, the Russian invasion, we prefer in Kenya to call it that, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which obviously violated international law and borders, accepted borders globally. Um, we, speak, we tend not to speak about it euphemistically. We think it was one country invading the other. Um, had different effects as well for different countries. So some countries on the African continent, especially those that, uh, and Kenya is one of them, that are importers of uh, grain globally, especially um, uh, wheat, uh, corn, and a little bit of, of uh, vegetable oils uh, coming from sunflower oil that comes from Ukraine. Obviously, some of it comes from Russia as well. And you understand that uh, when war takes place, most global trade takes place through the seas. And of course, that sea, especially the Black Sea area, became very, very um, uh, insecure. That obviously raised the prices of, of these commodities, and they were felt in some African countries that are net importers of food, and specifically Kenya is one of them. So it wasn't all African countries, but it was some of the largest African countries that are net importers of food. So it had that impact. The second one was obviously, uh, of course, Russia is a major producer of, of, of global petroleum. So the petroleum from Russia is not the one that gets to Africa or to Kenya. Again, African countries are different. Kenya is a net importer of petroleum products because Kenya is not a, um, blessed with petroleum resources. So it does not have an extractive industry based on petroleum. So crude petroleum in Kenya is, or petroleum products are actually imported from global markets. We know the effects of the sanctions and we know the effects of, of, uh, of uh, uh, Russian reduction, um, a reduction in Russian supplies. So obviously that led at the beginning, especially when the war started to an elevation of prices that fed itself immediately into Kenya. And it had Kenya and some countries in East Africa. And what it had was the double effect of rising, uh, rising prices of food or other staple foods or cereals for importers, net importing countries such as Kenya. And then obviously for countries that also import petroleum, these two led to an elevation of prices domestically and in turn drove inflation quite a bit. So for the first time, I think Kenya's and some countries in Africa has had inflation going well above uh, 10%, uh, which is quite, quite high. And this was coming on the back of recovery from COVID, which had not been fully done. So obviously um, it added a shock to these economies and there's been some kind of uh, 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 economic instability affecting government revenues on one side, but at the same time also affecting all the way to households and farms. Um, so that's it. And the third part, of course, is also created further destabilization of global value chains, uh, which have not recovered. I think many countries uh, were just recovering from, from, from COVID, which was obviously one area in which some level of global cooperation had been, had shown some success. Uh, so in the immediate form, Quite apart from obviously the different uh, political debates that took place at the UN, I'd like your leaders, your readers to understand that African countries responded differently. The African countries that have had long-standing relations with Russia, for instance, and so their views uh, were largely supportive of Russia. But on the whole, if you go to the UN, many African countries actually voted uh, um, in condemnation of these of these uh, of these violation of. Uh, 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 the territorial integrity of, of Ukraine. Uh, we know that um, subsequently, of course, a grain, uh, a compact, thanks to Russia, Ukraine, and, and, and the UN reaching a compact that allowed for the grain to take, to, to move. So Russian and Ukrainian grain could still get to the global markets and African countries, therefore, benefited from obviously uh, food prices being controlled. Uh, they didn't drop, 
but there's still at least some access to the, the that the green. Uh, but obviously, that compact actually ended on the 17th of this month, which was Monday, and uh, it has not been renewed uh, based on, of course, other political considerations and, uh, and Russia's discomfort with uh, some prevailing conditions. So it might see again another shock. Um, so it's not calm, but the most direct shocks were actually the trade shocks in terms of uh, the cost of food and fuel. Uh, in addition to other products that come from Russia, obviously, some uh, cold old steel products that came from Russia, that were imported from Russia and, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and Ukraine as well. So most of the effects were obviously on commodities first, and then obviously on, on the trade of, of, uh, of other intermediate goods and services, intermediate uh, products. Thank you for your important thoughts on this matter. I would like to move on to the question of China. How do geopolitical shifts, such as China's growing presence in Africa, impact the relationship between the African Union and the European Union? Wow. Um, again, I think, uh, Livia, it's, uh, it's different. You know, China's influence in Africa is not the same for every African country. As I said again, uh, just like it is for Russia and for the US, Many African countries have had long-standing relations uh, with one or the other. And some China's had a presence in some African countries for a while. Uh, based on that, obviously, after the year 2000, when Chinese um, trade, uh, Chinese um, uh, economic diplomacy, but also obviously uh, uh, what many people call China's entry and engagement with African countries was elevated. It's had different uh, 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 outcomes, but nevertheless, yes, I think China's trade with the African continent um, expanded, expanded, exploded, if I may use that word, uh, enormously from the year 2004 right up to 2020. And I think many things explain it. One of those, of course, was deliberate Chinese moves into the African continent, but also because African countries, many African countries, uh, certainly East Africa, West Africa, and some parts of South Africa, uh, had started to liberalize their economies. As they liberalized economies, income started to grow. When income started to grow, China, um, which had uh, huge exports for clothing, plastic goods, electronics, which came out and were quite affordable in comparative terms, then led to that explosion of trade. So obviously that's that's been there. Um, the argument that has been made that I disagree with, we disagree that the Institute of Economic Affairs is that there was a displacement of EU and, uh, and the West, so to speak. That's not true. It's just that trade grew, but it grew faster uh, because of the nature of products that China exported into the African continent. It is also true that sometime towards the, the, the middle of the first decade of this century, uh, European countries for one reason or another, uh, were less engaged uh, in pushing the democratic uh, message and also in pushing for uh, uh, a trade arrangement, especially at the WTO, which led to some kind of disillusionment. And so China's entrance um, at that time coincided with, but was not necessarily a creation of that, of that, of, 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 of that phenomenon. But yes, I think China's presence in Africa but especially in Kenya in terms of Chinese companies, which constructed some very significant pieces of infrastructure, not just in Kenya, other parts of the country, I mean, other parts of East Africa, all the way to West Africa and even Central Africa. 
has been real. Um, less, less so um, other countries, but it's just because infrastructure investments in Africa as well expanded. Uh, uh, Chinese design of those infrastructure investments was completely different from the Western uh, countries and, 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 and that, and obviously they were not always cheaper as people have claimed, but Chinese presence in African infrastructure in its engagement with African governments and obviously in the trade arena has become more salient. Uh, I am arguing that it was not a displacement, it's just that a form of trade grew and it grew very, very quickly. At the same time, Chinese in, uh, um, institutions came onto the African continent, engaged with African countries, uh, governments, specifically which were on an expansionist mode for infrastructure and Chinese companies came with models where they funded, they provided the, the, the finance on one side and also provided the construction and that led to that. Uh, so yes, I don't see that it, there's been any displacement, but obviously what I would say is in the, in the reference to China and in, uh, in um, Chinese engagement with Africa, it's definitely been, become more prominent. Thank you, Clement, for uh, this good talk. Uh, finally, I would like to ask you, does the EU-Africa relationship need, in your opinion, a new strategy based on the dramatically changed international context? And does it need a new long-term vision? Obviously, yes. Um, uh, I, I think um, consistent engagement is much more important for me than long-term vision because the world also changes quite quickly. So if we say a long-term vision is something beyond uh, 10 years, then I'd rather say that uh, EU and the African continent, and by African continent, I mean the AU and its institutions on the one side, and I mean, again, African countries, whether in regional uh, arrangements or individually on the other. Definitely, some kind of engagement within Africa and EU countries, and EU rather, and EU countries, uh, is necessary and it has, it has to change because conditions have changed completely. Uh, so as conditions change, obviously new arrangements and new forms and frameworks for, for partnerships have to come forth. Um, and I think that that requires a little bit more, more thinking, but it's not as if people are unaware of it. I think it's just how do you, how do we start uh, and what should be the, the, what should be the, the priorities that are necessary. So speaking about time, yes, I think engagements, um, and I know it's already started because obviously Kenya has completed a, a significant part, I think about a year ago, of the economic partnership arrangements. I mean, a couple of months, but like a month ago, economic partnership arrangements between Kenya and the, and the EU, which have been on long-standing for a while. So obviously that's one showing that already there's an awareness for that kind of medium term to longer term strategy. But I think embedded in these agreements should be the opportunities for regular evaluation uh, to take account of new, to take account of new uh, domestic and global conditions and then to revise them. But that global engagement, I think uh, uh, globally, I mean, that global engagement is in the interest of both, both, uh, both regions. Thank you for answering all of these questions, Kwame. Uh, we have reached the end of our time for this podcast episode, but I would like to say a big thank you that you accepted the uh, invitation to this podcast and for your very insightful thoughts. This has been Politics on Point, and I have been your host, Livia Benkov.